following podcast contains spoilers and words like fuck, fuck, and fuck. We watch it. Hello everybody and welcome back to another gripping edition of We Watched A Thing. This week I am lucky enough to be blessed with true podcasting royalty. It is Sean Carney from the Sands Pants Network, currently one of the hosts of Scaredy Boys and How Good's Footy. How you doing, mate? Really good, mate. Thank you for having me. This is, this oh, is awesome. Mate. We've been wanting to do this for a while. I think we set this one up a long way out. We looked at that yeah. release date and let's hit it. I think it was back in August. And and there's there's an older movie that I know at some point we're both keen to get to. But, <laughs> but when I, I was when thinking I- about that today, actually. <laughs> <laughs> oh, classic. <laughs> Save that for another time. But when yeah. I threw new releases for you, you jumped at this one, Nightmare Alley. Yes. Uh I know that you are a Guillermo fan. Re- not long ago on Scaredy Boys, you did Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, and we've we've recently there'll be one coming soon that we did The Devil's Backbone as well recently, which is a fantastic film. Yeah, have you seen that one? I haven't yet. Oh, no. it's a classic. Like that one came out back in like two thousand and one, so it's early Del Toro. But like, yeah. it shocked me how he's a master already. And I'm yeah, like, man, yeah. how do you do it? He's a, yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's a jet. So we are of course talking about nightmare alley, a 2021 American neo-noir psychological thriller, uh, directed as we said, of course, by Guillermo del Toro and written by del Toro and Kim Morgan based on the 1946 novel of the same name by William Lindsay Gresham. This is the second feature film adaptation of the novel and it stars Bradley Cooper Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, Mary Steenburgen, and David Strathen. And what is it about, Carney? This is a great question. I <laughs> I wrote down uh, a little blurb I saw for this because I find it quite interesting. So, an ambitious Carney with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. And why I find that fascinating is because... That doesn't really happen until like two thirds <laughs> yeah. of the way through the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, jumping straight into it, this is definitely a uh, this is really a movie in two halves. Oh yeah. And I mean, what the story you describe there, as you say, happens well over halfway into the film. Yeah. And before that, it's very kind of unstructured and loose, kind of a yeah. a character study. So I saw this with. With Tom and Damo, who I do the Scaredy Boys podcast with. And Damo was saying afterwards, he said it, it might be like the hardest midpoint he's ever seen in a movie. Where it's just De- like yep. smash. And then two years later, and he's, you know, Stan is an established um, medium or whatever the hell, whatever his job is. <laughs> yeah. Swindling wealthy people. But yeah. like, yeah, it's part of me feels quite sad. It's such a weird movie. So the second half of it, I find more interesting. I think that's obviously when the plot kicks in more and like things wow, actually okay. start to happen. However, wow. I love the first half because that feels like a Del Toro movie. Where he really say, gets yeah. behind the carnival aspect <laughs> and all the you know all the freaks and geeks of the place and like the design yep. is the design the, the look of the film is better oh. in the first half. Yep. Web, this is going to be interesting then because I obviously agree with you that the second half is really where the story happens. The mm. first half doesn't have that, but f- I much preferred the first half of this film. Oh, yeah. Once- no, yeah, I think I'm with what- you because I think I wanted it. I wanted the whole thing to be at the carnival. Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, same. I just think the second half is where the film probably gets better because the first half is kind of aimless. It sort of wanders around a bit. Yeah. Then it settles it into is, yeah. what it is. And what it is. Doesn't grab me as much as most Del Toro movies, but what grabbed me yes. was the design and the look and the the, the characters of the the first half. 
give me more yeah. of that. Give me a whole film of that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, the production design in this film is stunning. And this is one of those films, there's been a lot this year, actually, that before they came out, had a lot of Oscar buzz. Mm. And then as soon as they got released, that all kind of died. And that happened with this film. And in some ways, I'm saddened by that, because I do think this film has a lot of good in it. Like the cinematography, the direction, the production design is truly stunning. This is easily the best designed film I've seen this year. Yeah. Sadly for me, I think outside of that, that's kind of where the good ends. I think the cast is really great, mm. but I think the story is a little- Well, I don't know. I mean, let's let's get into it. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen the 1947 film? No, I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? I haven't. It's so- not one that I've actually heard of before this film came about. I nice. think I, I, heard, I read today that it kind of came and went. It was a bit of a bomb when it came out. Yeah. Uh, I think the lead actor in it, uh, he was the lead actor. He's famous for Zorro, I think, Mask of Zorro. Yep. But this film grew a bit of a cult following, I think, in the 2000s and onwards. And Del Toro even wanted to do this in like the mid-90s, I think. I think oh, he'd wow. done Kronos, which one of either his first film or one of his first. And he like very arrogantly was like to the studio, uh, <laughs> would you like to give me the money to do Nightmare <laughs> Alley? And they were like, your first film hasn't even come out yet. What do you want? <laughs> So, yeah, he kind of had to wait. And he said that when he did The Shape of Water and he won the Oscar and it it did well at the box office, and that was with whatever company he's doing Nightmare Alley with. I can't remember. It was like Fox Searchlight or whatever. Yep. He said once that was a success, he knew, I can go to them now and ask, can I do Nightmare Alley? Interesting. So, yeah. I was really surprised because I I associate del toro with such originality you know like you look at films like the shape of water and and pan's labyrinth like yes they're fairy tales but they're very creative and inventive and very as you say kind of del toro yeah and this movie being an adaptation doesn't really have that feel no so i hadn't seen the 47 film and i haven't read the book but after i watched the movie my initial thought was well he must have he must have changed a lot of this, you know, like, especially the way it ends and everything. I was like, there's no way this is a book from 46. Well- I was I was wrong. This is yeah. almost a straight adaptation from what I can tell. Yeah, I've heard that it's one of the saddest books you'll ever read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is the feeling you get when the movie ends. Well, like, definitely it's, that cause tracks. Because it's, it's Del Toro. He does, he does a lot of things similar throughout his films and he does them quite well. But one yep. thing he generally does have is a bit of hope. He always yep. believes in a little bit of hope in the world, a little bit of good in the world, even in like dark places and all that sort of Definitely. thing. Definitely, yeah, yeah. This film did not do that. <laughs> it's true. Like, yeah, yeah. You look at the end of Pan's Labyrinth, and yes, that is a very grim ending, yep. even grimmer than this one, arguably. And yep. yet, I know what you mean. There is, because there's such a fairy tale feeling to that film, there is a real sense of hope there, which this, this ends in complete despair. The ending to this is, uh, and it's- it's extremely predictable, like which is what I didn't love about the back half. Once we get into the story, I found the story very predictable. Yeah. But it's still a gut punch when you get there to that final moment. <laughs> yeah, because so I came out of it and my, my friend said to me, "Did you, how long, like when did you pick that that was going to happen to him? And I was like, actually quite late. I think I just got like- Really? Yeah, I think story-wise I disengaged from this, but I was just sort of eating up the visual aspects of it still. Yep. So I was kind of like sitting there for most of this film going, geez, this hurts my heart because it's Del Toro, <laughs> but I'm probably going to drop two stars on this movie. It just yep. hasn't really lived up to any any of the hype for me. And then that ending, that ending's probably worth a star. Like that is a fa- 
both the yeah. the decision to do it, the direction of it, the way they framed it, and the fucking performance. Like yeah. Bradley oh, Cooper, yeah. if yeah. he if he is going to get nominated for an Oscar, unlikely probably it's a pretty stacked field, but it will yep. be one hundred percent because of that scene. It's it's haunting. I, I agree. I've never been a huge Bradley Cooper fan, mm. but this performance was insanely good from start to finish, I think. And that final moment, like you say, that is an Oscar-worthy moment. I think that his performance maybe started a bit slow, but it's weird. You don't often see a, an actor build and build and build and build. Like, I thought he he built his way into the performance. So the whole yeah. way through, he just kept getting better and better, even if the story was maybe going the opposite way. Bradley yes. Cooper was elevating until, yep. yeah, I mean, I, I can't actually get over that final scene. It's Yeah. It reminds me of, have you seen Captain Phillips? No, I haven't. No. So there's a a scene. It's either the final scene or near the end with Tom Hanks, and like I won't say much. I'll just say that it's like some of the greatest acting I think I've ever seen. And yeah. the rest of the movie, yeah, it's fine. And he's he's good. He's Tom Hanks in it. You know, he's solid. But you yeah. have that one scene where you're like, holy shit! Just give him the Oscar for that like five <laughs> minute scene. Yeah, crazy. Having said that, Bradley Cooper, I think he's miscast. <laughs> Yeah? Okay. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Because I reckon that character needs to be younger. Like, this is the kind of quintessential okay. yep. role where you'd have a, a kid in their, like, 20s who's, yep. like, trying to build their way up in the world and there's been a few hard knocks and eventually they learn the tricks of the trade from the other people at the carnival and then they go out in the world and things are good for a while and then things are bad for a while. Bradley Cooper is nearly 50 years old. I think he's 47. Oh, and- wow. Okay, that makes me feel really bad about myself. <laughs> He's like a good 15 <laughs> years older than me and looks like that, and here I am. But, wow, okay, yeah. But, like, I look at Bradley Cooper and I go, I think you could probably pass for 40. Like, if, yeah, you, if this movie's yeah. telling me you're 40 years old, great. But him being a 40-year-old at the start of the film still is too old for that character, especially when you got, like, Willem Dafoe calling him young buck, calling him kid. Well, yeah, And yeah. Um, Tony Collette sort of is like, you got the whole world ahead of you sort of thing. It's a very young role. And I'd even stretch that to Rooney Mara, who yep. I think she's, like, mid to late 30s as well. I think yep. she's too old for that role as well. Yeah, right. I agree. It's funny. It didn't strike me at the time, I think, because I thought his performance was so good. Mm. But you're exactly right. There's a lot of, like, hey, kid talk thrown around. Like, yeah, he's too That old. definitely is a role for a 20-year-old man. Oh, for sure. Because then you see them, you, you know, you can start- you got to have a bit of hope. you got to- things have got to go well before they go bad. And they do in this movie, yeah. but it's harder to sort of buy into because he's already coming at it from- when we meet him, he's already world-weary. He's already yeah, that's a quiet, true. you know, yeah. quiet sort of broken guy who who's desperate for a job, desperate to do anything. He'll, you know, he'll do anything. He'll sleep on the ground. He'll, yeah, yeah. So I just, I don't know that that aspect of the story make him younger, <laughs> and you do really get that sense from him, like narratively. Um, I actually really like, like the first five minutes. He doesn't say a word. I spent yeah. the first five minutes of this film thinking his character might be mute. Yeah, because um, I don't think he talks in the trailer. Yeah, right. Okay. I should talk about the trailers. <laughs> See, I haven't seen the trailer because I don't oh, know if you great. know this about me, but I have this, I have not watched a trailer in, God, it must be seven or eight years now. I see them at the cinemas. Brilliant. But that is the only time I see them is if I happen to see them. I've had this vow to not watch them. I'm so happy for you. And I, <laughs> I assume this came about because trailers 
basically reached a point where they tell you oh, the entire film. I hate it so, so much. Bad. Yeah. Can I tell yeah. you the example that always comes to mind? And it's the Dark yep. Knight Rises. It's the fact yep. that they show Bane blow up the football stadium. You see that? You imagine cool. if you saw that for the first time in a cinema, it would have blown your mind. Yep. But yeah. I saw it in a trailer because I watched the trailer <laughs> thirty times before I watched the movie. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So I try and avoid trailers. Occasionally, I'll see one, but I didn't yep. see the Nightmare Alley ones. Okay, yeah. And so my this is the Del Toro thing. When I think of him, I think of horror, and the yeah, fact that yeah. it also had Nightmare in the title, I was like, I I don't know much about this film, but I think I'm going in for a little bit of a Del Toro spooky time. I thought the same thing, actually, yeah. And it's not a horror film at all. So we not went into it. Yeah, I watched it with the guys from the Scaredy Boys because we were going to do an episode for our show because yeah. it's a horror film. And then we're like, we can't do it. It's not a horror film. Yeah, yeah. So the guys told me, watch the trailer. So I watched the first trailer today. And I shit you not, you could watch that trailer and come away thinking, is Bradley Cooper going to turn into a werewolf in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even kidding. The trailer is Willem Dafoe doing like that speech he does when everyone's circled around to look at the freak. At the geek, yeah, about, is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the geek. Is he man? Is he beast? <laughs> All this. And then as he's doing that, it's just like overlaid shots. Bradley Cooper not talking, but it's just him progressively getting worse. And then there's him bleeding okay. and him scraping <laughs> blood on the wall. And the music's like, din, din, din. And then there's that shot, you know, when he's running in between the train carriages towards the end. Yeah, Because yeah. he's being shot, he's sort of- running like in this weird sort of way, which if you come at that with no context <laughs> and you can't see the blood because you can't get the silhouette, he looks like yeah. a werewolf. It looks like he's running like a werewolf. <laughs> so a lot of people saw the trailer and went, oh, cool, it's a horror movie. And maybe he's a monster. Yeah, It's not a monster movie. <laughs> no, not at all. It's f- My wife and I saw this for date night and yeah. she hadn't seen the trailer either. So neither of us knew anything about this. And yeah, very early on, even though it's not a horror Del Toro does inject a lot of atmosphere into the film. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that first scene with the geek, which happens very early on, where you, I, we were both, like, she looked at me when he bit into that chicken's neck and she yeah. was like, what the fuck did you drag me to? And I was <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I don't know what this film's about. But, yeah, it really is not a horror no. at all. It's one of those weird things, even, you know, Wikipedia and IMGB describe it as a neo-noir psychological film, which I guess to some extent it is, but- I think, to be honest, I'd call this a straight drama. I think, to me, yeah. what works best about this film is the character study of it and seeing his progression, which is why the carnival stuff works. Because, as you say, it's a really hard cut. you know. And it's not just the two years later thing. The tone and everything shifts at the halfway point. Yeah. And I think the only thing that makes that work is seeing his progression. Yep. I would have made the jump longer than two years. Yeah, me too, actually. I don't think two years is enough time for what happens in between and what we no. see. Yeah. I agree. And I also don't think it's enough time for them to have built up that sort of lavish lifestyle. They're basically leaving the carnival with nothing in presumably a truck that they've borrowed with yeah. no real money to their name. Like, actually, Bradley Cooper's character, the arrogance of him is actually fantastic because he pretty much doesn't even do his his show at the carnival. He just, yeah, yeah. Tr- he just tricks uh, the guy that Jim Beaver's playing, the, the the police chief or whatever. He just tricks him, and then he's yeah. like, "You see me? I'm ready. Let's get out of here." And it's like, yeah. "You gotta, you gotta do the groundwork, man." Yeah, it's true. And when he first has that discussion with Rooney Mara about, you know, this is an act that could be bigger. I thought he was talking about her electrocution act. I didn't yeah, realize her, he yeah. was talking about himself. He's just an but- arrogant. F- but even like he sells it to her like I've got a I've got an idea for a two person act and then it cuts to 
the great Stanton or whatever his name is. So it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's him. And she's just, you know, there to support and help. And, you know, yeah. it's just, it sucks. I'm so happy that she lived through this movie. She's Definitely. like, yeah. she's like one of the only like genuinely good people. Yeah. And that actually was the one thing I found unpredictable. When, when they do embark on their eventual kind of scam and she gets involved, I knew that it was going to go south, but I did think that she was going to die yeah. in that whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I thought they were going to do the old she dies to teach him a lesson thing, which I was ready, so ready to hate, but I'm glad that she was so- basically like, fuck off, and just yeah. left. Yeah. Even at the end, I thought he might wind his way back to her and she could see the decrepit thing that he's become, but like, nah, it's just, I don't know, hopefully she's moved on to something better. Yeah, so apparently, even though the original book ends this same way, the 1947 film did turn that ending around where she's at the same carnival that he eventually becomes a geek at. And, oh, okay. And they kind of rekindle and, yeah, just, you know, it was the 40s. You had to have a happy ending. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I've got a bit of an issue with Kate Blanchett and I'm, I think I come at this in a biased way because I've never really been a fan of hers. Oh, Even- fuck yeah! Oh, my God, you're the other person. Okay, great. I get ragged on all the time for not loving Kate Blanchett. I think she's a, I think she's a great actor. Yep. But I, and I don't even really know why, but I've never really watched her in something and liked her. And yep. granted, she'll often play a, not a very likable character from the things yep. I'm thinking of. But some, even if she was playing a likable character, I would just be like, nah. And in this, I've seen people praise her performance and I totally understand it. But for me- She's like her and Cooper are in two different films. He's trying yep. to play it film noir, sly sort of. She's I, I don't know. She's ratcheted it up to like volume twenty. She's gone way too hard at it. I think. She's full Bond villain in yes. this film. Yeah. Well, yeah, she's basically her in Indiana Jones. She's hamming it up <laughs> yeah. to that extent, and it's like yeah. it's cool. We all know you can do that, but just like bring it back a bit because there's no part of this movie where you ever go, hmm. Can we trust her? Because you just can't. You're like, straight away, you're like, she's going to rip him off and he's an idiot. See, this has always been my problem with Kate Blanchett is that I feel that she often overplays it. You know, even Lord of the Rings, which let's face it, it's a high fantasy. It's a hammy film. I still feel like she is 10 above everyone else in the film. I rewatched that recently and she just goes off the charts. Exactly. Like instantly. And it kind of ruins it for me. And- you know, I've liked her now and then. I'm actually a big fan of The Gift. I don't know if you've seen that, the nah, kind of thriller from the yeah. 90s. Yeah. But I think for the most part, she really hams things up. And and I agree with you. I think she does in this film as well. Yeah. Um, I think most of the cast is pretty solid, though. Where are you on Toni Collette? Oh, I think she's good. I- I'm a fan of Collette. I um. I'm a coward, so I refuse to watch Hereditary. So I think I'm robbing. <laughs> I think I'm robbing you might myself get to it this year, though. Uh, <laughs> over my dead body. <laughs> I think I'm robbing myself of what I've heard is one of her best performances. Um, yeah. I think she's great, but they don't really do enough with her. It's exactly um, what I was going to say. I think yeah. she is the only. You know, we lose almost all the carnival folk at that halfway turn, and she's the only yeah. one that I'm really like, wow, that's a loss. Where underusing Tony Collette in this film. She should have been a, a much bigger factor. And even then when yeah. they come to visit, her and Ron Perlman and the other guy come and visit them in the city, and it's like she still doesn't really do anything. I think she just flips yeah. some tarot cards. And it's yeah. just like, you know, 
Like what? Like I, I liked her. Was it her husband, David Strathan's character? Yeah, he was yep. quite good too. And I wish yep. that they'd actually. I know that we saw their little two-person act when they were um, demonstrating it to Bradley Cooper, yep. but I kind of would have liked to have seen it on stage, seeing their like sort of low-rent version of it, just yep. to f- just to flesh that out a bit more. I think, yeah, I think they, yeah. In that first half, he spent too long on certain things when he should have spent a bit more time with Tony Collette. I agree. That's one of the things for me. This is a very long film, and I yeah. really felt the length of it, like, yeah, big time. So, we went to a 7.30 session, and when you go to a 7.30 session, you don't expect to be walking out of there at 10.30 at night, but we did. Yeah. And it was like, wow, okay, that was that was long. We went and to like, yet- yeah, we went to a 12.40, and then I got out of it. I'm like, well, my whole day's gone. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I agree with you. The Part of the problem is that as, for as long as it is, I feel like the wrong things are spent the amount of time on. There's a lot of stuff that's underfleshed in the film. Like, Tony Collette and her relationship with Pete even is never fully just given a proper establishment. Like, I think we're meant to assume that they're husband and wife, but he's so much older than her that it's it's a bit strange. Even Pete's alcoholism, I don't think is fully established. There's a couple of hints that he has a bit of a problem, but not to the extent that, you know, we then see him die from. Yeah, that was too abrupt, I think, you know. You yeah. kind of hint at the problem, and it doesn't even seem like a, a massive problem at that point. It's just sort well, of, he, you know, that's he just seems, who he is. Yeah. Exactly, but he seems like a fully together yeah. Dude, I mean, there's the one scene where he kind of slips up during the act, but apart from that, we don't get a lot. And I really had a bit of an issue with Bradley Cooper's turn to alcoholism as oh, well. That annoyed is, me. Yep. It's very, very abrupt, and I still don't understand the motivation for it. Like, was that him just trying to show up Kate Blanchett's character, or there's such I just a didn't weird really understand dynamic. the turn. I think they get to a point where they're just trying to have power over the other one but if that's his idea of gaining power over her by drinking he's a fucking idiot because (laughs) him doing that he loses all of his power this yeah she's goaded him into doing that i don't have a problem with him drinking but i want it to be after this i want it to be at the bit at the end when he's sitting around in sort of that that hobo sort of village with those guys that's exactly right finally break down and have a drink and give away your father's watch and all of that don't just sit there and have a drink he yeah my God, he makes some poor decisions. Yeah. Basically, when we get that hard midpoint, every decision he makes after that is wrong. Yeah. And any likability that they've built up with that character just instantly dissolves as well. Like, yes. it's not that he's ever, it's funny, he's the protagonist, but he's not a great guy. No. But you still kind of like him at the carnival. You know, like he shows some compassion for the geek, for example. And, yep. you know, but then in that second half, he is such a raging. Yeah, <laughs> because like, you know, Rooney Mara's a, her character. They don't. She's another one who probably doesn't get enough to do. She she gets a like a decent amount. She has a couple of nice beats, but like not enough to do. But she's nice, and so she for the audience, it's like if anyone's rude to her, for you give them the old Ron Perlman fucking punch in the face. Yeah, so yeah. for him to just so abruptly be an asshole, it's just kind of shit. I wanted to like, yeah, if you're gonna have a two and a half hour movie. Spend more time slowly showing Bradley Cooper sort of come apart at the seams. Yeah, because that really is, I mean, that's what this story is. This story is a rags to riches to rags story. Yeah. It's uh, honestly, it's a dramatic version of Steve Martin's The Jerk. It's <laughs> you see a poor guy kind of build himself up and then break himself down. But the turns are all so abrupt that you really miss the transitions there. And, and it kind of, 
it's a bit sad to say this about a Del Toro film, but it come you come away from it feeling a little bit pointless. Like, yep. what was the journey for? You know, and I think you can pull out certain themes and stuff, but it still overall doesn't feel like a worthwhile journey to me anyway. I agree with you. I think, like, for a two-and-a-half-hour film, for basically every turning point to be so abrupt, it's like something's gone wrong in the writing phase. Yeah. And this is very much a master director yeah. directing the shit out of a kind of mediocre script. <laughs> yeah. Like, big time. Like, they'll, if they win any Oscars, it'll be like the production design side of things. Yeah. Look, and honestly, though, I don't think we get. I don't think we've said enough to be fair about how good the direction of this film is. Like, I think oh. this is a beautiful looking film. Yeah. Like, I think the composition of every shot is stunning, especially the production design of that carnival. The way that he uses those lights in the background and everything are just gorgeous. Mm. This this is where it's like, I don't know how faithful. We need to be to adaptations. Yeah. This is purely selfishly, but I just wanted the whole film. I wanted a two-hour film, and I wanted the whole thing to be at the carnival. And if you want to bring Kate Blanchett's psychiatrist into it, she's just a traveling person who comes to the carnival. I could see that. You know, and hooks up with him and then sees an advantage to take down some people. Because I think the implication in this- Film. We haven't talked about Richard Jenkins yet, and I want to because he's fantastic. Yeah, like yep, he, sure. And he comes in too late. They've probably robbed him of a an Oscar nomination because maybe yep. he just doesn't have quite enough to do. But geez, he's scary. He's that kind of actor who. There's another film I was watching. I think it was Bone Tomahawk, where it took me 15 minutes, and then I went, "Holy shit, that's Rich Jenkins!" Yeah, like, kind of sinks into characters. He's fantastic. He does. Yeah, yeah. But um, I like. I can't even remember the point I was trying to make about Richard Jenkins. <laughs> I got mesmerized by his talent and I've just absolutely lost my thread. Um, yeah. The film, yeah, it goes for too long. I'm a big I'm a big fan of a tight 90-minute film. Oh, I know Del Toro is never going to sort of play in that field. But this, this yeah. should have been two hours and I would have loved if it was the carnival and I would have loved for them to just – because you're right, when it's so abrupt in the middle – you just suddenly lose Ron Perlman. You lose Tony. Yeah. You lose everyone you've kind of invested in. And then the thing that they replace it with is just Stan being an like a, just a massive dick. And yeah. it's like, I like what you said before about he's, we, the audience does kind of like him, but I think that's purely Bradley Cooper's charisma because well, when we yeah. are introduced yeah. to this guy, he's burying a body under a house and then setting it on fire. And you're like, yeah. well, what the hell? What is this guy yeah. doing? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. And that's where I think, you know, you spoke about him being miscast. And yeah, I think on the age one, I agree. But you definitely need someone with that kind of charisma to play this role because otherwise there's just nothing there. Yeah. Absolutely. I've circled back to- um I remember what I was trying to say before. <laughs> Richard Jenkins, yeah. yeah. No, no, it was to do with Kate Blanchett. I think the implication is that Richard Jenkins is the one who gave her the scar. Interesting. Okay, I yeah. I did not pick that up. That's what um that's what we were talking about when we got out of the film. Uh, I think um I think Tom was saying that he was saying yeah it, it I I because he came and saw her as a patient and then yeah, you get yeah. his whole speech about how he's how he's hurt women and he's been doing yeah. it for ages and I don't know why I do it and I'm doing this. I think he did hurt her and her long. Her long con was basically get the money off this idiot, but also get revenge on that old prick who hurt me. I like that better. And to be honest, I wish that had been more explicit because I think that makes her motivations so much clearer. Because when we got that turn for her being a villain, 
I was like, is this just because Bradley Cooper was kind of a dick to her when they first met? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, and I'm all for subtlety, but I actually I wish that had been more explicit if that's, that's yeah, they, the case for sure. They did not make her turn clear. Like they no. they signposted it in that it was definitely going to happen just because of the way she's playing the character. Like yeah. you, you knew for sure that he was going to get ripped off by her. But yeah, I wish that they this is where I, the timing of the film, the the structuring of it's a bit off. I wish they'd brought Kate Blanchett in earlier because yeah. I kind of like her thing of like, oh, I can use this guy. He thinks he's got one over me, but I'm actually controlling, pulling his strings. Yeah. She should have had a long list of people who have wronged her in this town. Yes. She sends this guy to go and fuck with them. Like that uh, see, here, we, cool. here we go getting the old movie maintenance out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, because you got that cool bit with, I think it's, is it Mary Streenbergen's character where she yes. kills her husband oh, and shoots see, that herself? that was a great scene. Too. How great was that? So yeah. then Stan's only seen him and Richard Jenkins' guy. Imagine if he's gone, she's set him off around yeah. all these other old dickheads in the town and she's just wiping people out, taking money. That would have been yeah. cooler, I think, than her just sort of, I don't know, being a dodgy psychiatrist. That would have been very cool because I do think what the movie's really missing is like a true antagonist and a yeah. true villain. Like for what this film is, for a, for a neo-noir rather than just a character study, I mean, Bradley Cooper is arguably both the protagonist and the antagonist of this film, which is fine if that's what it is. But then when you throw Kate Blanchett in as well as like, oh, look at this, I was pulling the strings the whole time. Yeah. It really sucked me out of that final- well, she's she's your classic sort of femme fatale, I guess, and I, I agree with you that Cooper is kind of playing both, but I think you only get away with that if you do it effectively, and they didn't really do it effectively. And then yeah. Richard Jenkins comes into things, and he turns out to be a very disgusting, sinister man. But Which you don't I find that done. out until too late. That's exactly- I was just going to say that. I could have done with finding that out earlier, because you find that out in his final scene. Yeah. It's literally- it must be less than two minutes before he meets his end yeah. that he admits to all he's done. And that's kind of the end of it. <laughs> and you can kind of, you could have done it in a clearer way where the we, the audience, know Richard Jenkins' true nature, but Bradley Cooper doesn't and just thinks he's a bit of a wealthy guy. So the tension yeah. is kind of sky high. It's that whole, you know, bomb under the table thing, but the characters don't know about it, but the audience do. Give us a bit more tension because this movie, weirdly for Del Toro, the atmosphere was tense at the start. Yep. But then the air kind of went out of the balloon the longer the film went. I had the exact same issue. I said that to my wife when we were leaving. The problem was, even though the first half arguably really had no story other than just developing Bradley Cooper, yep. the second half with the story completely lost the tension because where the narrative was going was so predictable. Like in that scene, I knew that, you know, Richard Jenkins was going to discover that it was it was a scam. Like oh, yeah. we all knew that was coming. So there's no yeah. tension in those moments when yeah. it should be the most tense moment of the film. That scene where Molly is kind of risking her life as well, you should really care in those moments. And I kind of just didn't. Which is interesting because are you the same as I in that you quite like the Molly character and you don't Definitely. want I don't want anything bad to happen to her but she's, I didn't really feel tension in that moment because exactly. the movie let the air out. Yeah, she's the most likable character in the film, hundred yeah. percent. Her and her and Tony Collette and for some crazy reason Ron Perlman was my MVP in this film. I thought that he what he was doing with the small character he had was spot on for me and I thought that he was great. 
I, I agree. And I wonder if it's because he was one of the few characters who had any real humanity because his drive. Right. Yeah, yeah. When, when you meet him, you think, oh, I reckon this guy's just trying to like get money off everybody and be the boss. Not at yeah. all. His motivation is I was friends with your father and I promised him I wouldn't let anything bad happen to you. And you yeah. go, oh, he's a, just a big old sweetheart. Yeah. And he's got, yeah. he's got sore knees because he's the strongest <laughs> man. And, you know, yeah, yeah. He was cool. And I think that that actually is my problem overall. Like, narratively, the story is about Bradley Cooper's character, Stan, being a con man and his growth into that. And I didn't buy that from the start because he's, he he actually does seem to have too much humanity in him. He really seems to care for Pete, for example, Tony Collette's partner. Yeah. And his turn to just being a complete dick in that second half just did not track for me with the character that had been established so far. Yeah, like the way he turns out in that second half, in the first half, you'd need to have, you know, that scene where Pete falls asleep and um, Stan's looking through his book of tricks. Yeah. But it's not in like a- it's, There's not no in an malice ask, there. Yeah, there's no malice in it. He's just genuinely just curious. Whereas yeah. like if you want to have him turn into the massive dick, maybe have it- like his plan is, I'm going to steal that book, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna feed, I'm gonna fuel this guy up with liquor to the point where like he can't remember anything, and I'm going to steal all his secrets. But he doesn't have that malevolent side either. Exactly. So that and that, as far as I can tell, seems to be the difference that Del Toro has made, which is something I don't quite understand. Is that in the novel and in the 47 adaptation, it is more explicit that he purposefully kills Pete to oh, okay. take that book and to, and so. I actually think I like that more because that establishes the character. Whereas here, I don't think that's ever, ever even hinted at. I, I, I like that too. It's stronger on the character and he's sort of like making an active choice rather than just being like, oh, Pete died. Oh, yeah. Take that book. I would even like, even when Pete dies, I would like his first thing be to break into the house and try and steal it quickly and get out of town. And See, maybe Tony Collette finds him and, you know, and you know, gives a blessing or whatever. It's like, fine, you just take it. But there's disappointment. There's none of that. Yeah. It's kind of just like he gets punched by Ron Perlman and then the next second they're jumping in the truck and it's happy days. Yeah. So it's not. But, like, yeah, everything's a little bit too abrupt. Nothing really leaned in. I'm just so shocked that a, you know, two and a half hour movie just, <laughs> like, they, if you're going to take the extra time, Get the script right. Get everything flowing yeah. right. Strange. An odd movie. Yeah. I just wanted to sort of pick your brain just from a visual effects point of view. Yep. About did anything stand out for you? Because I have I I saw some comments online today where people were just kind of like, did this get nominated for anything special effects wise? Because some people were like, oh, what effects? And I'm kind of like, well, there were obviously effects in there. And I'm sure like often the good ones are invisible, right? Like we don't, it, well, they don't exactly, scream in your face. Ex that is the thing that I think most people don't realize when you talk about visual effects. And I had this discussion recently with Paul from The Countdown when we were talking about Mad Max Fury Road, yeah. where a lot of people talk about how amazing those practical effects are. And they are. But people forget that there are 2,500 visual effects shots in that film. Yeah. Because most of it, particularly... And, and in this film, my guess is that majority of it is background extensions and background plates. So the carnival, for example, I'm sure that a lot of that was practical set that was built, but there was for sure extensions going on there with yeah. visual effects. Yep. The production design of that fun house, for example, which was stunning and such a beautiful sequence of the film that really built up tension and atmosphere. Yeah. I know, that, I mean, you can tell that at least half of that was 
was visual effects. Yeah, okay. And but that's where I think this film is beautiful. And I said the same thing about Shape of Water. I think when you can blend those cinematography and visual effects elements together, that's when you've nailed the look of a film. <laughs> so the the cinematographer for this was the same as Shape of Water. Yeah. Which I just naturally assumed had won the Oscar for cinematography. I don't he think so. Yeah, not and I was like, what? design, but not, yeah. Yeah, I was like, how did this guy not win for Shape of Water? It was beautiful. Yeah. And I looked, and I'm like, ah, oh, Deacon's won for Blade Runner. <laughs> of course, yeah. We, I mean, yeah. which is a beautiful, oh, and that, I yes. mean, that is another one where the visual effects are just blended so beautifully, but more yeah. obvious because of what it is. Yeah. But yeah, when it's a film like this, it's really funny. I beg everybody to go look at a visual effects reel for Ugly Betty. Okay. <laughs> you would never think a show like that, but that show was virtually entirely shot on green screen at points. Really? Um, yeah. The Great Gatsby is another one. That entire mansion was was fake. Um, I actually did some work at Animal Logic, the company that did the visual effects for that, which is on all their reels. Because even though most people don't think of it, they basically only built the doorway as a physical set. Fuck and up. then everything else is just set extension and green screen. And that's where I think people forget where visual effects has gone these days. It's not all big monsters and creatures. 90% of it is sets because it's so much cheaper to do that on the computer yeah. than to build a massive set. <laughs> in, in your opinion, is that reflected when you see things like the Academy Awards, the nominations for best effects? I, th- I think it is more yeah. and more. I re- I, correct me, but I feel like... Black Swan was nominated for visual effects a couple of years ago. Yeah. And that's another one where there's a lot of like set cleanup and everything yeah. done, like for those dance sequences and stuff. I yeah. think more and more that is definitely being recognized. Yeah, that's cool. But I think it's one of those things that, yeah, the average person going to the movies still doesn't, you know, like you hear so much talk about how bad CGI looks. <laughs> And I think most people who say that don't realize how much they're seeing is CGI. <laughs> yeah, because, okay. you know, it only looks bad when it's when it's so outlandish and obvious. But the majority of stuff you see that's just you wouldn't expect it CGI. That's yeah, where cool. it's really well done. <laughs> so a shot in Nightmare Alley, there's one I love and it's like just a massive wide shot of the carnival. And yeah. the Ferris wheel, I think. And then there's just lightning in the background. Oh. These, these are visual effects, yeah? Absolutely, the visual yeah. effects. My bet would be that that was not a real Ferris wheel either. Yeah, so they've um, added that. So it's, that would be it's all layers. They layer everything, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah that's that's sick. Yeah, yeah. It's oh, it's beautiful work. You know, like when you oh, see, actually, when yeah, you no, see this- a compositing reel of like the number of layers that go into something, you're like, wow, yeah. that is, that's that's true art. <laughs> this, this fascinates me. I want to know- if you could tell, so when Bradley Cooper lights his house on fire and there's that shot of him walking out and the whole thing's going up in flames, how much of that is practical flame and how much is visual effect, do you think, from looking at it? I wouldn't be able to tell, actually. Yeah. And that's when you know it's really good. Yeah, cool. Because I, uh, I would imagine it's just it's too much flame. Like you just, it's, it's way too much. Yeah, like, it's definitely Oh, hey, you just couldn't do it. So I imagine maybe there's- I mean, I wonder if any of it's real. I assume maybe a little bit in the background and then they just sort of fill yeah, it up Yeah, maybe. It's really funny when you hear stories from sets and stuff where- and, and then it makes you think even more when things like the Alec Baldwin thing happened and it's like, how did yeah. that happen? You hear stories from sets where it's like, they need to have a safety meeting because they're going to light a candle on set. And it's like, okay, we're going to light a candle. This is a real flame. Nobody touch the candle. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, yeah, it's That's pretty great. Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. But no, I thought this was a, 
a truly beautiful looking film. And while we're on that flame, is there anything cooler than flame reversed? Uh, did you notice that those shots? Yeah, were, yeah. yeah, that was it's awesome. Just, it's just a really cool look. I think uh, they did it like I think three or four times, and every yeah. time I'm like, yeah, cool. This I'm I'm here for this. <laughs> yeah. This stuff's good. Yeah, he's a he'll never make a a boring movie. I think Del Toro. I mean, that's true. Given how long this film was and how much I at times didn't care about the narrative, I was never bored, which is, I mean, that's tough to say about a two and a half hour film. Yeah. I think this script in the hands of a different filmmaker might have just been a a bit shit. But in his hands, he's created something that is, there are are big chunks of it that are quite fascinating. Yeah. So, I um, I tip my hat to him. Do you- I mean, we spoke a little bit earlier about how this has kind of fallen out of the conversation. If you had to pick this for any Oscar nominations this year, what do you think it might have a shot at? Um, I'd throw it up for like cinematography, for um, for the production design aspects of it. I actually quite liked the score, and I heard today I that- I loved the score as well. That I, haven't, I need to look into this to confirm if this is right. The composer knocked it out in a couple of days. That's because fascinating. There was some because of COVID or something. So um, there's that famous composer. I think his name's Alexandra Desplat. Desplat, you know yeah, I yeah. know that he was supposed to do it, yeah. and then he was replaced. I didn't realize it was that quickly, though. Yeah. So because of COVID, like I think Del Toro had to be in the same room as him, sort of thing, because that's his right. process. And because they couldn't get that to work, they brought in this other guy whose name I can't recall. Uh, Sorry, Nathan but- Johnson. Yeah, and uh, like it apparently knocked it out in a few days or something like that. That amazes me because I loved the score for this film. It's and great. I actually, until I looked it up afterwards, I thought it was Desplat. That's the who- thing. I wonder if he came in and went, "Well, that's what you wanted, so I'm going to try and." do a, a thing in his sort of style. Yeah, because Desplat obviously did the score for Shape of Water and from memory won for score or at least was nominated. I think so, yeah. Um, but yeah, I thought the score for this was stunning. It was beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, maybe even the score, but like that might be the first time a score gets nominated <laughs> for like a few days work or something. But yeah, no, that guy yeah. did a great job. Yeah. Ba- basically any of the production design, the art direction yeah. sort of stuff, I think. Bradley yeah. Cooper's still in the conversation, but I just think overall maybe not quite. There will be yeah. stronger performances, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And well, this is the thing too, and you're the same, being here in Australia. We don't get most Oscar-nominated films until after the New Year, so there's, yeah. you know, there's plenty that, and ones that have been in the conversation and now dropped out, like Spencer, for example. We, I think, we only just got last week. <laughs> like, Has, so that's dropped out, is it? Uh, my understanding is that there's not really any Oscar buzz around that anymore. But the whole know, award season is just crazy. I reckon. It is like, crazy. People that whole forget idea about of, movies that come yeah. out earlier in the year. It's ridiculous. I remember one year, um, Wes Anderson had Grand Budapest Hotel, yeah. which I love. I think it's a great film. But it came out in March, and then the Oscars are obviously like 12 months later. And it exactly. still got nominated for quite a lot. But at the time, I was like, that is like nearly unheard of. Yeah. Most of the movies that are nominated are like December releases. Exactly. Movies that came out earlier in the year, which I loved, like The Green Knight and Pink. Oh, I love The Green Knight. See, they're not going to get any nominations just because people have forgotten about them, which is so sad. (laughs) See, on The Green Knight, I would say that The Green Knight and Nightmare Alley have probably my two favourite endings of the year. Maybe not favourite, but like the two strongest. Green Knight's favourite for sure, because I just think that's stunning. Yeah. Nightmare Alley, I wouldn't say it's my favourite ending, but I did watch (laughs) it and go, holy shit, like that is just- Fantastic. Well done yeah. by everybody. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, de- I mean, definitely that turn. And like, even though I saw it coming, it's still a fucking gut punch when you get and the performance, the laughter, and and the way he delivers that final line of "I was oh. born for it." Yeah, it's like wow, j- oh, just it hits you hard. Yeah, I read the um, <laughs> I read that scene in the script today because the script's online if people want to read oh, it. Oh, right. It's, yeah. They do that with some of the you know Oscar season sort of ones. Yeah. And yeah. just the- I can't remember the wording exactly, but the description of it by Del Toro and um, was it- Who was it? Kim, the co-writer. I can't remember. Uh, Kim Morgan. Yeah, Kim Morgan. It's just fantastic. It's just like describes him hearing the description of the job from the guy and just like- Yeah. They describe his face as just like completely dissolving into like yeah. five or six different things and breaking down. And it's kind of like I'm imagining Bradley Cooper reading that and he nailed it. Like yeah. he absolutely nailed it. Yeah. I mean, you want to hear something scary. William Lindsay Gresham, who wrote the novel, which does end the same way, he actually also wrote a nonfiction book about carnivals. And that, oh. non- that nonfiction book is the one that that description of how you break a geek is oh. from. That whole description of you pick them up and you offer them alcohol and tell them it's temporary, <sighs> that was from the non-fiction book, which is like, that's that's scary that this is a- re- Like, people used to go see this shit for fun. <laughs> yeah, it is horrible. And that, that's yeah. part of it. Like, that's what I said before. Del Toro's normally, normally gives you the horrible, but lifts you up with a bit of the hope. And there's just yeah. none of the hope. And, oh, it hurts. And it's just that line, you know, when the carnival boss says to him at the end- it's that key word he's got to hit where he says it's temporary and your yeah. stomach just sinks and you go, oh, God that, damn. That's the thing. You know exactly what's happening, but you're right. It's that one word. That's the hit when you're like, yeah. oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> and he's been told the story. He knows what that means as well and still has kind of dissolved as a man so much that he's just like, yep, sign yep. me up. <laughs> it's 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 tragic. Oh. So, all in all, how are you scoring Nightmare Alley? Oh, man, I still feel kind of undecided, but I think out of five, I'm probably sitting on a three. I yep. think large chunks of it disappointed me and the direction and the pacing and not, sorry, not the not Del Toro's direction, but just the direction of the story. The direction of the narrative, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the narrative and the structure and things like that, I think, yep. were a bit of a letdown, particularly for a Del Toro film. It's normally yep. very strong. And it did, it was elevated a lot in my mind by a really superb finish. Yeah. Still, ultimately, I like a bit of hope in the world, <laughs> and I'm probably, I probably will give it a three. Yeah, I'm yeah. exactly the same. My gut reaction when walking out and I opened Letterbox was to give this a a three, so six out of ten. I I struggle with that because I do think there's a lot that's really, really good about it, but there is enough that didn't work for me that I I think that's a fair score. I don't know, maybe I'll revisit it at some time and maybe I'll like it more. But to be honest, there's always the chance I'll like it less. <laughs> that <laughs> so, is, yeah, that's a worry. I did, yeah. While watching it, I was like, will I watch this again? Probably not. This is yeah. not grabbing me. But then it, now I'm kind of like, I did come into it with a lot of baggage of like thinking Del Toro, it's going to be horror, it's going to be that, spooky, yep. it's going to be this, it's going to be that. So now maybe I need to go back to it a year from now and just enjoy it for what it is, which is a yeah. bit of a visual trait. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's cool to hear too, though that you're you're the same as me and that you like to just read screenplays. I do that all yeah. the time. Just one of my one of my favorites, which really shocks me, is American Pie. If yeah. you've ever read the original screenplay, for <laughs> oh, that, I haven't. It's no. so tightly written. It's yeah. just it's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's well, it's it's a great thing to do after you watch a movie. Just yeah. to like to a be like 
to break down how they took it from that and what we ended up with. And also yeah. just if you have that film sort of mind and go, how would I have done that sort of thing? Yeah. It's, it's, they're a cool resource. And there's yeah. so many available out there. It's awesome to do. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining me, man. This has been awesome. Pleasure. I love talking film with people and you're an amazing person to talk film with. Can you tell everybody where they can find all the shows you do and, and how yeah. to get in touch with you? Yeah, so you can find my shows anywhere podcasts are at really um so i do scaredy boys uh which has new episodes every friday and just a a horror podcast where three cowards force themselves to watch horror movies and then the other one i do is just called how good's footy which is for australian football fans um it's a little bit looser than scaredy boys and it's it's actually just a crazy podcast we watch footy and get angry and uh, (laughs) it's good fun but yeah you can find them anywhere and i'm on twitter at Carney from 55 and you can find my film reviews on Letterboxd. I'm at Carney Sean. Yeah. I mean, both shows are awesome. And as I said to you before we started recording, Movie Maintenance, I think, is one of the all-time great podcasts. But Scaredy Boys is a hell of a lot of fun. And you're just embarking on the Year of Fear, which you kicked off with <laughs> Muppets Haunted Mansion, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> yes, we did hint that we were finally going to do Midsummer. Um, I should point out, I don't think Midsummer is actually going to be that scary. It's just sudden. It's just become one of these ones we've avoided. Yeah. We are cowards. I'm scared of that. I'm scared of hereditary. I'm scared of everything. But yeah. We I did mean, go back through our previous two seasons and go, we start really strong. We watch a lot of spooky movies. And then I think yeah. we just give ourselves a few too many treats. Yeah. A few too many of like the comedy horror movies and things like that. So this yeah. year we are, um, we have pledged to do some very, very <laughs> scary films. So, I, yeah. I will say, I don't think Midsommar is super, it's definitely less scary than Hereditary. You could handle it. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I can. I've just built up in my mind. I'm just Well, man, thanks again for joining me, and I highly recommend that everybody out there check out all of the shows that you are on, as well as everything else on Sands Pants. They're all just a great time. Next week, I will be joined by my wife's music again. We've got a patron request for a very special movie, Mean Girls. Are you a fan of Mean Girls? That's a good film. That's another tight script. Oh, it's a very tight script. Honestly, Tina Fey's best work. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can go to or rewatchedthing.gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the handle at rewatchedthing. If you want to help support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash rewatchedthing, and I'll catch you next week. You're still here? The, the show's over. Go home. Go. But if you can't get enough of We Watched a Thing, why don't you check out our Patreon page? There's tons of behind-the-scenes content, heaps of bonus episodes. You can get full, unedited videos of each episode recording. You can pick a movie for me to do on the show, or even come and join me while I talk about it. So why don't you head over to patreon.com forward slash We Watched a Thing. Go watch a movie.